0: Welcome back to the show. I am Peter Kapsner filling in for the second hour here of day one of Bill Arnold's vacation, a long-deserved vacation where he gets away for a few days like this to spend some time with some friends, loved ones over the ho- holiday weekend coming up here. And delighted to be with all of you as the listeners here as we're continuing this day that really seems, and, and Rebecca is sort of turning out to be a, a bit of a journey through the biblical text. I mean, I know hour one, as we talked about at the end of last hour, really had some pretty in-depth kinds of conversations around scripture, and we're going to welcome. Chris Palmer into the show here in just a minute oh it's going to be so good and it has been and it will continue to be so we've we've covered Genesis with David Wheaton we had Clay Cray beyond talking about union with Christ in Romans 6 and now we have Chris Palmer indeed welcome to the show Chris Palmer Peter,
1: it's great to be with you. Good to be back with the Faith Radio family.
0: Yeah, we're really excited about this conversation. I know you've written a number of books over the years, but your most recent one that's uh, coming out here on Amazon is called The Greek Word Study, 90 Ancient Words That Unlock Scripture. Why don't you just give us a little sense of how this journey started for this book? What, What prompted you to want to write something like this?
1: You know, I used to sleep through Greek 1 and 2 <laughs> in my in my undergrad, and then something inside of me in 2012 told me to go back to start studying Greek again. And uh, so I pursued studies in biblical Greek at Moody Theological Seminary, and uh, it just kind of woke up inside of me. I got excited. It was like reading the Bible in H.D., Uh, Greek 3 was a a really awesome class because we got to see how Greek actually works and functions. And so, uh, you know, in 2017, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to put some of these cool one minute principles on Instagram. I did it. I called it Greek for the week. Every Wednesday, your Greek one minute for the week. It grew and, uh, you know, to thousands of followers, did a little podcast, started with it and then started publishing with, uh, with Whitaker House and uh we came out with the first book letters from Jesus studies from the seven churches of revelation where i put out some exegetical insights on the book of revelation chapters 2 and 3 uh from the greek and also historical context uh, which kind of and, and put that into a contemporary illustration so people today could kind of relate to what was going on to those churches uh 2000 years ago and kind of have a laugh while doing it but at the same time understand the sobriety of Christ's messages too the seven churches. And then I said, hey, let's do 90 Greek words. Let's make a word study. Uh, And there are a lot of word studies out there that that, that focus on Greek. But I said, let's update the word study. And instead of, you know, using real heavy jargon, let's cut all that out. Let's replace it with anecdotes or stories or word pictures from culture, from the news. And, And I really like quirky stuff. So I was I spent a lot of research finding really quirky stories from the news that were just kind of like ridiculous things that actually did happen or historical things from world wars or you know presidential elections things like that and made every single word study tied to one of those stories from the news or contemporary stories and it just to, to illustrate the word itself and it turned out really nice and it's such a fun study so when people see Greek words that they get so intimidated but. It's so much fun, and they'll learn so much about the biblical text and reading uh, through it.
0: Mm-hmm. And Chris, if you can remind our listeners who are wondering maybe, so why all of this about Greek here? Why, why do we continue to talk about Greek and the scriptures? Uh, just may remind us that, that the scriptures weren't written in English, and, and what is the sort of importance of the Greek language here?
1: Yeah. So the, Greek, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so Greek was the, was the lingua franca of the day. During Christ's time, and that's what they were speaking. I mean, they were transitioning between Greek and Latin at that time, but everyone would have understood Greek, and so our our earliest manuscripts are all in Greek. And so there are just things that translate uh, that don't come over in translation or English Bibles, not because there's some type of evil translation committee out of there, but it just you just it gets lost in translation. So when you learn the original Greek, you start to see nuances that you just will not get in the English Bible. It's not really, they're not used. None of them, I would say, are theologically um, to the point where you can't understand the basics of Christianity, but they're just nuances that make it come alive where you'd say, wow, I never, never saw that in the Bible. And it's not hidden. It just doesn't come over in translation. So you find some guy that knows Greek or, or someone that can teach it and they can bring those insights to you It just makes you fall in love with the Bible all over again.
0: Mm. So if you're listening today as we're chatting with Chris Palmer about different words in the Greek language of the Scriptures and you have a specific question you'd like to ask Chris or the show, you can go ahead and text in at 877-933-2484. I think we can actually take some calls during this hour if needed as well. So again, that phone number, if you have any specific questions about the New Testament and the Greek language and just maybe different verses that you've been troubled by or you wanted to understand further, please do feel free to text or call. Again, that Number is eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. And Chris, one of the things you and I were laughing about here at the break was that we didn't think we could probably get through all ninety words <laughs> in maybe the next forty minutes, right?
1: Right, right. I think that that might be a little bit of, a, of a trouble. We could we, we could certainly try. I guess I, yeah. I talk really fast, so maybe.
0: Okay, well, let's, uh, let's jump in with at least one of them because I think the two of us make a good pair with the speed of, <laughs> of our language. But I was really intrigued, given what's going on in our world right now, that you have this, uh, this phrase, take heart. And there's something about take heart when I hear it. it, just even in the English, that is very encouraging. But coming from, example, John 16, verse 33, Jesus saying to his followers, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but, and here's that phrase, take heart, I have overcome the world. Just maybe kind of expand on that phrase, take heart from us, as it was written in the original language.
1: Yeah, so the Greek word for take heart is darstete. And, uh, you know, we have phrases that we use today in our modern 21st century world that are idiomatic. Good luck, go break a leg, knock them dead. You were made for this. Uh, You know, if you're a Star Wars fan, may the force be with you. Or, you know, in the Lion King, Hakuna Matata. And, And so everybody understands what that means. If I say, if I'm having a bad day and I say Hakuna Matata, you're like, wow, it means no worries. Well, Jesus had a phrase like this that he was always using in the text. He uses it. All the time, and he says, stars to take, take heart." And every time you see this, Jesus is about to perform a miracle. Jesus is about to do something to let his disciples know that he is the promised Messiah. He's the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He is the one who has come to be the repair between God and man. And uh, and so, as you start reading the text and it rolls itself out, it would be an anticipatory statement that you know, he's about to do something here that is going to show us that there is actually hope, and I don't have to fear. I don't have to be full of anxiety. And so the more you see it using the text, the more you start anticipating what God is going to do. And so the word itself simply means be of good courage, uh, you know, be bold, be firm in the face of danger, don't fear. And Plato, in one of his uh, writings at the time, used it to describe having confidence In the face of death. So you understand that this is to be uh, something that you would use in the the, the face of an emergency or in the face of danger. So when that word pops up, you're like, wow, something is about to happen. So when I teach this word, I say, hey, if you're reading the biblical text and you see this word tharsite, or you'd see it take heart in our our New Testament, in, in our English versions, that's when you get your popcorn out. And you start watching because something is about to take place that is really significant, that speaks to us about the uh, the power of our Lord and our Savior and the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus.
0: So this word really has uh, within it sort of a confidence in the future that you can actually take heart. How How do I say the word in the Greek again? Tharsite?
1: Yeah, tharsate, it's a command.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, this is one of those words, it seems like when you walk into church and, and the greeter, if the greeter just greeted you with this word, it really would have, uh, have a meaning about it that that could really bring some strength and encouragement into whatever's about to happen.
1: Oh, absolutely, Peter. I mean, that's a good way to talk about it. I mean, you could walk in and they say, you know what? There's a pandemic in our earth today but Tharsite take heart I have mm. overcome the world we have civil unrest there's an election that nobody knows what's about to happen who's going to win will there be voter fraud Tharsite take heart I have overcome the world be fearless in the face of all the events of 2020
0: it's great stuff, Chris. We are going to take a short break here. Again, if you're listening and, and you have some questions about some New Testament words, as the New Testament was written in the original Greek language, and, and once you get into that language a bit, it, it really does help expand our understanding of these words that sometimes can be a little bit confusing, the English. Uh, it's a great time to ask Chris, ask the show a question. You can text or call at 877 933 2484. Chris, it's after a great start. I've got a bunch more words for you when you come back for break here in just a couple minutes. Sorry. Welcome back to the show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Bill Arnold today, and we are having a really interesting conversation with Reverend Chris Palmer about different words in the New Testament Greek and what they mean as we sort of understand them in the English. And Chris, we had a text you write in. Patrice was wondering, uh, what are some resources, uh, and and how does your resource, how is it different than some of the other Greek resources that are out there?
1: Uh, That's a fantastic question. So this resource combines contemporary fun and stories, into a devotional. So a lot of the resources that are out there aren't very devotional, or if they are kind of devotional, they were written 20, 25 years ago. So what this has done, I mean, there's some great Greek devotional uh, resources out there, but they are written in 2003, 2004. And so it kind of misses that real 2020 edge. So what I did was, hey, this is like 2020, and this is not technical. It has a lot of scholarly research inside of it, but it's not technical. So if you really want to know the power of, uh, of Greek behind the text and you want it to be up to date to what's happened in the last two or three years, this is the most current, up-to-date scholarly Greek devotional that's out there today.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I think when we initially hear, and, and you talked about going to Greek class back at Moody, that it's a little intimidating to think, gosh, I have to get into an entirely different language just to try to understand the scriptures a bit. But but this actually, it it's surprisingly accessible, right? I mean, you, you don't have to have an IQ of 427 to be able to get, <laughs> get into the languages like this, right? I mean, it really is accessible for people.
1: Yeah, I made it accessible to where it would be enjoyable. I mean, I have in my in my church I have mothers that are at home with their kids all day, fathers that come home with to their kids and and mothers who are working and they have jobs and and I said, "Look, just give it a try." And now they use it every day. They're at home with their kids drinking coffee uh and they're they're learning about Greek and it doesn't it doesn't seem to intimidate them at all. They love it and they've been enjoying it. And that's exactly why I wrote it so that it doesn't matter who you are. You know, my professors in, uh, in Greek class, I used to tease them and say, you know, you guys tormented me for nine semesters having to learn the mechanics of the language so that, I'm going to, in return, do the world a favor and give them Greek without tormenting them. And, and here we have it. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's do another word from the book here that I found intriguing, and that's the word confidence that you, that you address out a bit. And specifically in a passage like Hebrews 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And Chris, I know that when I have the idea of drawing near the throne of grace with confidence, there there's so much other language In the text that is to sort of draw near to God in awe and in fear and in trembling. But but this passage has a different invitation to it, which is let let's walk forward in confidence to the throne of grace.
1: Yeah, so this word here is really interesting because it's not it doesn't mean what you think it might mean. It's perseus, which means frankness or outspokenness or fearlessness. And so it was used by ancient Greeks at that time to talk about actually having freedom of speech or the right of every citizen to speak their mind. And so when you consider today – I mean we as 21st century Americans, we really understand what this means because you know, I can – I actually saw a funny, a funny meme the other day. It showed a guy in, in the midst of all this protesting. He had a sign up that says, we need Space Jam 3. Or something like that. So he's out there protesting for another Space Jam movie and everybody else is protesting. And it just shows you that I could say whatever I want, you know, in and, 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 and this society that we live in. And so it's kind of saying as we're citizens of the kingdom of God, we're members of the family of God. And so with that, we have a frankness of speech where we could go before the throne of God and we can really tell God what's in our heart and what's on our mind. And we can do that because of the work of Christ that's in our lives, and so when we approach God, we're not. He doesn't want us to be timid and, and act like a child who's in the corner pleading with Him, uh, you know, out of fear. He wants us to be shameless. He wants us to be bold, and He wants us to really speak what's on our mind. And I think that is that shows how you know we are uh, w- what makes the Christian religion such a a paternal uh, religion, where we, He's our Father. And were his children, and that's that's one of the beautiful things about uh, being a Christian.
0: Yeah, my understanding of the of the worship of some other gods of that day, Chris, was that it typically was done in fear and through rit- rituals to try to appease that god, perhaps. But this is very different. What we're talking about here,
1: absolutely, in everything about it would be would stand in contrast. to That I mean, you have people at that time making sacrifices. When I was in Ephesus, we we, we saw the temple of Artemis and the things that they had to do, and they they constantly lived under fear of wrath. I mean, that's why uh, the scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. That's why John was very clear with his audience at that time, which was, you know, mainly Jewish and Gentile combined, that, hey, you know, like other gods, you don't have to worry about the fear of wrath, because God loves you, and because you've received Christ as your Savior, you don't have to fear wrath the way that the other Gentiles fear wrath, or even under Uh, under Old Testament law, they would fear wrath. You now have the work of Christ to rely on, and you can walk with confidence knowing that certainly Jesus had made peace with God through his sacrifice.
0: Mm -hmm. Chris, we have a listener in Hartford who's texted in and uh, has the phrase, any notes on the phrase, do not quench the spirit? I know you have a chapter that is about not grieving the spirit, and I'm not sure that those two would necessarily relate to each other, but any help you can offer this listener from Hartford about do not quench the spirit?
1: Yeah. And by the way, Hartford, I've not been to that city. I would love to. I heard they have really good pizza over there in Connecticut. So I have. I I, I need to get there. Right. Uh, Yeah. So I would say this was pretty much the same. Okay. Lupete is the Greek word and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're still in the day of redemption. I write about that in the book. And it it simply means, okay, not to cause the Holy, I say it like this, don't allow the Holy Spirit to become annoyed with your actions and your activity. Because, you know, we get the sense that God you know, doesn't have emotions, but he does. And some of the things that we do have a way of, in, in in human language, irritating him or kind of making him sad or getting under his skin or or causing him a distress. And I'm not saying that it's over this, the head of God where he's, you know, totally in disarray like we might be, but it's something that kind of is friction against what he wants to do and so in the sense of quenching him it might simply be that if he's leading you to do something and you tell him no or you don't do that you kind of put a halt on not only what he wants to do in that situation but also the blessing that, that can come from that so i would say it kind of has this sense of don't annoy him don't uh, and i'm not saying he's not being patient with you but it's like hey you know don't hurt his feelings In that sense. That's literally what the word would mean there, especially in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, which Mm. is in a different a different text. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Talking with Chris Palmer a Greek Word Study here, 90 Ancient Words That Unlock Scripture. And again, if you have a question at all for Chris about some phrases or some words within the English that you read and wonder, gosh, I really would like to know more about what that word means, feel free to text in or call the studio, 877- 933-2484. Rebecca, I know you were combing through the list quite a bit too, and there's a lot of intriguing words in here. Is there anyone that stands oh, yeah. out for you as well? Well, I'm a word nerd too, so I'm just taking notes and learning a lot from Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris, I was looking at, and I I think one of my favorites so far and maybe my new favorite word is number uh is study number 17 in your book for workmanship.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you look at the illustrations in there by any chance? I love I this.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I'll let you describe it because you're the expert and the author. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I had a lo- I had a lot of um, well, I you know, I had a lot of fun writing that one because I I've, I've had positions and jobs before where I can't really say that I've had uh, you know, good co-workers that, I, that were with me. And, and one of the things, so the word, uh, oh, you talking about workmanship, study number 17? Is that which one you mean? Yes, but now I'm intrigued to think which one you thought I meant. Okay, I thought you said co-worker, <laughs> but hey, look, at, <laughs> look at you. there's so many words in here. We're trying to get to all no. 90 in these 45 minutes, That's so why true. don't you pick which one you want,
0: Chris? You pick co-worker, okay. workmanship,
1: we'll follow your lead. <laughs> it's all it's all the same idea, right? Okay, so Poema, it's talking about an artist depiction of something. So when it says the workmanship here, it's really talking about something that is produced by an artist that an artist had to take time with, and he was being very meticulous with uh, what he was creating. And so the idea here is that when Paul says that we're our, God's workmanship, uh, when you look at what, how artists produce something, artists don't always use beautiful material to make beautiful things. And so one of the, the, the illustrations that I use here is that there was uh, an individual named Angela Posey of Oregon. She goes into the ocean. She finds all this garbage and she finds all this trash and she takes it all out of the ocean and she makes a beautiful display uh, of, uh, that, uh, 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 that's just wonderful art. And, you know, people came to admire that and she made it out of trash. And so that it serves as an illustration of what it's like for us when you consider what we were as sinners, how the master artist the, who created the world, who created the universes. When you look at sunsets and mountains and the, the intriguing fish, hammerhead sharks and toucans and, and little ants and beetles that look strange. I mean, this is from the artist. He comes and takes sinners who are the most, you know, they're his enemies. They're reputable. He says, you know what? I can make something, even out of sinners. And so he takes us, he shapes us, he reforms us through the work and the bloodshed of Jesus Christ, and he makes us into what now the Bible calls the redeemed. And we, we are redeemed, we are blood-bought, and so when people, uh, when you consider that there's, we're new creations in Christ Jesus, it shows that the new creation in Christ, those that have received Christ, it is the most splendid of all of God's works. And it speaks to the master that there's nothing that he can't work with and make beautiful. So that's the idea behind poema or workmanship. Mm,
0: that's a beautiful description. And it's, it's sort of an ongoing process, is it not, too? It's not that, that he finishes with us just for a moment. One, that we, we continue to be his workmanship. He continues to walk alongside of us and to continue to just make us more and more beautiful.
1: Absolutely, Peter. Absolutely.
0: Well, I'm intrigued. We've got just a couple minutes left before a uh, bottom-of-the-hour break, Chris, but you did reference co-worker, and so we should probably go to that one briefly uh, on that, and I'm guessing that co-worker in the biblical text is going to be a little different maybe than I experience my co sometimes.
1: Yeah, well, I would hope. It says in Scripture that we are God's co-worker, and one of the things that, uh, you know, the Greek word here is synergos, and, uh, you know, one of the funny things I, I found was that it talks about in, in this chapter bad co-workers, and probably maybe one of the funniest things I said in the book was that there's this coworker. He get he works at a, 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 a development place. He gets fired, okay? So he goes home, he puts on this Godzilla suit, right? I don't know how, why he has a Godzilla costume, but he has one at home. He puts it on, he comes back, and there's all these little model homes and houses that they're supposed to be building. He comes in, he destroys them all at like Godzilla. And so I talk about things that coworkers do that really make them kind of the people you don't want to work with. And I talk about how the scripture tells us in First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, that we are God's co-workers. And so this is a two-part Greek word, and in Greek there's compound words that come from two different words. So this one is sin, which means with or linked together, and then there's aragon, which means task or occupation, labor, or even undertaking. And so when you place these words together, it simply means coming together for a task. And so really what God is saying is that in this Ministration of the gospel that we're called to preach and tell people about Jesus to fulfill the Great Commission. We are God's co workers, and He's partnering with us to bring the light of Christ to the nations and to our neighbors and to the people that are around us. And so, the challenge of this devotional is hey, make a decision today. What kind of co worker do you want to be? Do you want to be one that when Christ through the Spirit gives us a task that we're eager to fulfill it, or are we going to be the kind that when we don't get our way, we put on a Godzilla suit and come destroy all the models? And so, um, you know, that's the challenge. And so I think it serves for readers that, hey— you know, today, make a decision how you want to serve.
0: Mm, what an Lord. incredible promise to be a co-worker with God in the work of redemption in this world. Uh, what, what kind of God do we serve that would invite us to do that and, and increasingly be his workmanship? This is a conversation with Chris Palmer. We're talking about some of the original words in the biblical Greek of the New Testament and how understanding some of that Greek can really take us and, and invite us more deeply into what life is like in his kingdom. We're going to take a short break here. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the day for Bill Arnold. Show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Bill Arnold today, who's on a nice holiday for the holiday weekend, not just today, but for the rest of the week. And we're having a really interesting conversation about the Greek language of the biblical text with the Reverend Chris Palmer and so many different words coming from his book about 90 words in the Greek and unlocking some of these ancient words in ways that would help us. And, Chris, I had a question for you just about the name Theophilus in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. It's a study that uh, my family and I are actually doing right now. We're just reading a chapter of Acts uh, for sure each week, if not a little bit more often. And it actually came up that people were wondering, was Theophilus a real person, which he was. But is there some kind of significance or meaning in his name? He is the one to whom the gospel of Acts or uh, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is written. So what's in this name, Theophilus?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic thing you're doing—is reading, uh, you know, with your children and, and going through all this. And and so there's this idea in theology that—and uh, I'm not saying it's accepted. It's just—it's just a conversation that some some of the characters that show up in the story are these their names or are they taking on pseudo names that have some type of significance that kind of is ironic that winks at the readers and that that kind of is something to consider. He was a real person, uh, and so let's look at his name. Theophilus was a very popular Greek name at that time. It's like the name Michael. Uh, you know, was in the 1980s and the 90s. It's just it's just kind of the name you're going to get, because it's super popular. And so it's a compound word. It means theos, okay? It comes from two words, theos, which means God, and philos, which means love, or to have special interest in, which is very fitting for this guy, Theophilus, because it, the first thing we notice when he shows up in Luke is that Luke tells him, I'm writing to you this, Theophilus. I'm I'm writing this to you because, so that you can have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So this tells us that he he's not certain, he's dealing with uncertainties. Okay, so the first thing we see in this is that there's this guy who may be wrestling with doubt or may not have it all figured out. But the name Theophilus, would, being from Theos and Philos, means that he's someone who has special interest in God, which is the, what the name meant. So it's telling us that this man, whose name means special interest or special love for God, has its doubts, which tells us that our doubts... Don't disqualify our love for God, which would set people free. Because if you look at Barner Research, they say that Christians today, 65% of Christians are have at some point in their life dealt with some type of significant doubt, whether it was when they first got saved or whether they're in college or later on in life when they meet someone who challenges their faith. And then it, it, I think the statistic was 40 percent uh, say they work through that uncertainty, but thirty five percent still say they doubt from time to time. Which means that even if there's someone listening today and you doubt, that doesn't mean you don't love God or that you have some type of problem. And then when we look, you know, who Theophilus was, Theophilus was actually a wealthy person at that time who was responsible for actually publishing the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So he wanted to spread the literature and and put it out there. And so in regards to that, if you take the name Theophilus and you turn it around, it could mean one that loves God or also one who's beloved by God. So that tells us that even though he loved God and had doubts, God still loved him, which tells us that God has a very special place in his heart for people who are asking questions. And sometimes people think that their questions vilify them, but that's not actually it. And so the questions that he was asking about why he was following as a Gentile, a Jewish Messiah, why was he part of this first century Jewish movement, which Christianity started out as, God said, hey, you know what? I'm going to reward you for those questions, and I'm going to give to you a two-volume set on the work of Jesus— And the work of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the church to help you answer those questions. And so what it teaches us is that our uncertainties at times can be the very thing that God uses to lead us into a more profound understanding of the Messiah. And that's proved through the life of Theophilus.
0: Mm, such a beautiful explanation. And just the idea that Luke really does focus on how the gospel does include the Gentiles. And of course, the book of Acts then is how it explodes out of Jerusalem and mm-hmm. Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And, and, and that idea that uh, people who have doubt or wonder if they can actually be included in the kingdom. Boy, Luke and Acts really resolves that for all of us, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, for sure. That's great stuff. Well, Chris, uh, we've got a few other words we'd love to get to as part of your book here. I know uh, for sure the phrase demon-possessed has come up a little bit more often than maybe it had in, in years past. And I'm not sure if it's just because of the significant social unrest we're experiencing as a country and, and not even just the unrest of it. But, Chris, there seems to sometimes be almost sort of a, a viciousness, if, as it were, that, that belies this reality that we're seeing, even on both sides. And that viciousness, I think, is causing people to ask some questions. How how does the spiritual realm really interact with the physical realm? And and is it possible that people are still demon-possessed? What are we even talking about here when we see this phrase demon-possessed in the biblical text?
1: Yeah, so as 21st century individuals in in the Western world, you know, all of us have been influenced more or less by naturalism. And so, you know, we look at things empirically and we try to figure things out. How is this explained scientifically? And we kind of go through the scientific process to look at things. And that is how a 21st century mind, you know, works today. Uh, But first century minds were quite different. And even pre-first century, I mean, if we go back into you know prior to the time of Christ into our BC days, we'll see it's the same way. And so you have this idea of a daemon, okay, which at, at that time describes something often a supernatural force. And they weren't always bad, actually. I mean, they eventually the word evolves into something that's evil and malignant and malevolent. But at the time, it just meant a force that kinda was there and present, and it was in like it light people. It could be something that also disturbed a person's life, and so it kind of transcended into the word demon, which eventually came to me, mean to me, being a hostile spirit, uh, and later meant, you know, when it came to the word demon possession, somebody that was indwelt by this spirit. And so when you see the presence of demons by the time that the Gospels were being written it meant that this demon was something that was going to – it was a supernatural force. It could overtake somebody's life, and it could destroy it. And so when you look at what happens, whenever there's a presence of a demon, it means disruption or tearing apart. I talk about in my book uh, The the Exorcist in 1973. You know, the film came out. <laughs> yep. Right, you know, people have seen it, and it talks – you know, Reagan's in there. She plays with an Ouija board. She becomes possessed, and then bad things start happening. whoa. People say, "Well, that's just the movie. well interestingly enough, you could look this up historically when the movie was being filmed, you know these crazy things begin to happen you'll find out that in, in in there was nine people from the set that suddenly died tragically, they weren't sick. okay, do you have all these discrepancies that happen around the movie? So people begin to ask, and the, the question of demons became relevant again and so I, I talk about this in the book, and I begin to touch on it and and, and I touch on it one way and teach and and, and advocate for the position that look at, we still live in a realm, okay, in our, three, in, our, in our natural realm that's affected by a spiritual realm, and the biblical writers were not hesitant to write about this. They were very frank about it, so we understand that the biblical writers understood that there was a spiritual realm that affected this realm that we see with our eyes, and we understand that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he demonstrated his power over these demons, which was messianic to show that he was the one who had authority over demons. And so in a balanced understanding of what some would call spiritual warfare, or what we would call the spirit realm, or whatever you term it, is to understand that Jesus has power over these demons. And so when we're in Christ, and when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, it keeps us from any type of fear that we might have, that we may have a demon, or that we may be demon possessed. Okay, I believe, I, I stand in the, in, in the theological school that possessions do occur, you know, as a missionary for fifteen years, I've seen what I believe as demon possession, but I also believe that God has given us power as believers to cast out devils. And and uh, and, and that's something that I believe is in, in a in more of an Eastern religion would be more widely accepted than that. So I touch on it in this chapter and it's enough to kind of get people's minds going from a scholarly perspective.
0: And I think you make a good point that the, the Bible is very much supernaturally oriented in the sense that there is an assumption that there is an interaction with the spiritual realm. The only question is, is what is happening, not whether there is actually a spiritual realm. And and that even gets into the a question that a listener wrote in with, I know that you don't know as much about the word mammon per se, and uh, but it, it really relates to money in the text. It seems like even money itself has not just the money part of it, but almost an abiding spirit associated with it.
1: Yeah, and you know, people. If you look at money, I mean, people always say that the, the the love of money, that money is the root of all evil. And it's not really; it would not be that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. And you know, in uh, Matthew six twenty four, Jesus says, "You cannot serve God or it would be mammon, which it would be money." Uh, and so, I think that that sin can be enhanced and can be uh, exacerbated by. Uh, demon spirits and spiritual realities. And so that's why the Apostle Paul tells us that we have to put on the armor of God and we have to make sure that we are walking in a close fellowship with the Holy Spirit uh, and and walking in a close fellowship with Christ through the Spirit so that we can resist the power of the enemy, which at times would drive us to be greedy, would drive us to want more. You know, discontentment, I think, has driven a lot of people uh, mad, you know where they they can't never get to a place where they're satisfied and i think a lot of that is very spiritual it's not just psychological.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris we definitely have the text coming in here again if you're listening to Chris Palmer and have some questions about some new testament greek you can give us a shout at 87793324 Chris, i got to ask you about one of my favorite words in the biblical text because I don't know that I have a full understanding of this word other than that I really like it, and especially having lived in Scotland for a period of time. uh, It comes from Philippians 3-8, and it starts this way. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them, and here's the word now, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so, Chris, I would love some insight into this word rubbish
1: yeah so this would i would be the crown jewel of the book I mean this is the one I'm getting the text <laughs> about I'm getting the facebook messages about I knew this would be this was going to be the one that uh so the word here rubbish or garbage or whatever is the word alone. now this this was the most probably crass word that the apostle Paul could have used in this moment, and <clears throat> in the study, I talk about how there are. There are words that all of us don't like. And the most disliked word in the English language is the word moist. Some people might even tell you, don't say that word around me. It just sends shivers down my spine. Actually, there's a word that uh, that's in the English language. I, I despise it. I can't stand it. When people say it, I will, I will kindly tell them, please don't use that word. It, it will never appear in my books. It will never appear – I'll never say it because I just don't like the word. It makes me – I, I get embarrassed saying it. I don't know why. And so I actually looked into this, and it says it because these types of words usually are, are are related to something bodily that has to do with bodily fluids. It produces a visceral reaction inside of you that your mind just doesn't like. And so this is what the Apostle Paul would have kind of instigated by using the word skugalone because it was the most disgusting word at that time. I'm not saying he was cussing. I'm not saying that he was swearing, but I'm saying that he wasn't using language that my mom would have appreciated at the dinner table when I was a little kid. It was stuff that, let me give you kind of a historical background of the word, it meant at that time something that was stomach-churning, sordid, and repulsive, and in Paul's day, it was something that was uh, used to describe a dead body that had been washed up, half-eaten by fish after a shipwreck. So you get that imagery in your mind. In that time, it was. I, I don't think I talk- want that
0: imagery in my mind, actually, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> okay, keep hey, I can't it.
1: I, If anybody does, I'm gonna. I want to pray for them after the show, right? <laughs> it, it meant rotten hay. It, it meant dung, and so the way that we would best describe that, and, and brace yourselves, my my, not trying to be crass, It would be feces or poop, and probably even a little more crass than that. And so the Apostle Paul is literally telling you that when I consider my Harvard degree. When I consider my accomplishments at MIT, when I consider my 100 million followers on Instagram and my Emmys and my Academy Awards and everything that I've accumulated as a result of striving to be and make myself a name. To me, when I compare it to what I've come to discover about the love of Christ, it makes it look like feces in the toilet.
0: Hmm. It's an incredible explanation, actually, Chris, because, like you said, you're right. What precedes that passage is, is Paul going through this litany of things that really are those things that he once counted as uh, all of what was important in the world. It was his whole resume. It was being circumcised on the right day. It was the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was righteousness. He was faultless. And when, when Jesus knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus and, and he woke up from that experience blind and, and humbled, he realized that all of those things that we can attain in this world are absolute rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the Reverend Chris Palmer talking about some of the words in the Greek language of the New Testament with us. And we're going to take a short break, have just enough time for a couple more words. And if you want to text into the studio and ask Chris some questions, it's 877-933-2484. Stay with us. We'll be right back. about 12 minutes before the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Bill Arnold for today and for the rest of the week. And we're having a very interesting conversation right now with the Reverend Chris Palmer about different words in the biblical text. And Chris, during the break, I asked you what were some of your favorite words that you had a chance to study. And one of them you mentioned was the word with. And, and I keep thinking, Chris, how can this be exciting? This is just a simple preposition in the text. What is exciting about this word With.
1: So prepositions were one of my favorite things to study, and we've learned that there's different uses of prepositions that can mean different things, and there's they're often freighted with a lot of meaning, and that kind of shows that you know something so small can mean something so significant. It almost is like Christ in the manger, this little baby that's in a manger can, can, can have such a significant impact on the rest of eternity. And so this word here, I mean, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 10b, the Apostle Paul says, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that here, that is with me. And so we understand that this preposition is a linking word. So it links two things together. Now, he could have at this point, he could have used other types of ways of saying things. He could have said the grace of God that is n the Greek word M, which is in me, but he didn't say that. He said the grace of God that is pros or upon me but he didn't say that. He could have said the grace of God that is peri, which is around me, but he didn't say that. He said the grace of God that is sun, or that is with me. And so because this is a linking word, it's literally believed by Greek grammarians out there, that he could have simply meant that what he was using was a personal word. And by linking this, Paul was saying that the grace of God is something that he was associating with, and that he was Keeping company with in his most difficult times, and you know the apostle paul he he talked about his his uh his hardships. he was imprisoned, he was beaten with rods uh three different times. he was stoned, he was shipwrecked at night and the day. you know I've been to the Mediterranean I'd look at out at that dark water and think of Paul out there in the dark waters by himself afloat on a sheep uh, on, a, on, a, on a sheet of of wood sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, imprisonments. So the question is, what was it that strengthened the Apostle Paul? And he says, the grace of God was with me. And by saying that, he was almost personalizing it, saying the grace of God was my traveling companion. When I was cold that night, the grace of God was a blanket. When I was in the middle of the ocean, the grace of God was my life jacket, keeping me afloat. When I was in prison and I had wounds on my back. My traveling companion, the grace of God was a balm and it was an oil and it was soothing to my wounds. When I was, you know, in the wilderness, the grace of God had my back and it was protecting me from bandits and robbers. And so he makes grace personal. Like it was literally something at times he sensed was with him like a companion.
0: Mm, that's such an incredible encouragement, Chris. I just think about all the people listening and in myself and in my own journey in life too, just how many times you're going through hardship. And, and there's sort of that unusual, can't really measure it, but very real sense of something that is near, something close by. And my understanding is, is that the heavens are not just some place that's floating around in the universe, but that the heavens are simply the place where God dwells and it's as close as our next breath. But but there's a there's a veil between this world and the world of the heavens. But sometimes that veil gets really thin and, and that Grace is right next to us, right?
1: That's, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there's, I think we all have had times where we felt something tangible was helping me through this, and I can't explain it. And we know it's the grace of God.
0: Yeah, I love that phrase about the, the, the peace that passes circumstances, right? That, that, when that yes. crashes in into our hearts and mind, and it is, it's almost as if it's as close as our next breath.
1: Absolutely, Peter. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more.
0: Well, we have a few minutes left here, Chris. I, I want to make sure we get to what might be your favorite word. I know with was one of them, but you've got another word in the text here, too, that that when you look back at all 90 of these words that you did and that you chose, and, and it really is a very accessible text. So if you're listening here today to just what Chris has to say about all these different kinds of Greek words, I highly recommend picking up this book. Uh, Chris, it's available on Amazon as we speak, right?
1: Yeah, Amazon.com, just type in Chris Palmer Greek word study and you can find it.
0: So when you went through those 90 words, Chris, was there one that really just jumped out and said, oh, my word, this is this just has captured me completely?
1: Yeah, you know, this one and I'm interested to see what other people say. This is one that I really enjoyed writing because of the illustration that I was able to kind of connect to it. And and it kind of just opened it up for me was, you know, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, 8, that that he was he was preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And which is talking about what God has done through Christ. And it's really speaking of his grace through Christ Jesus. So the riches are the grace of Christ. And he, said, he calls it unsearchable. So he uses, this, he uses this adjective to describe it, okay? And, and the Greek word here comes from two different words. So it comes from ek, which means out of, and ignos, which means footsteps. So you think to yourself, what, what does this mean, you know, these out of footsteps? And it, it literally meant to trace something or to track something out. And it's this way because it would would denote a physical impression of someone's foot on the ground. But here it has in front of it an alpha privative, which means that there will be no footsteps. You will not find evidence that somebody is tracing this. You will not find evidence that somebody has been looking around for it like Sherlock Holmes because it is something that is untraceable. It's too big to be figured out. And so, you know, I was thinking about this and, and I got to thinking about Google. And so I was like, you know, where did this name Google come from? And you'll find out that when you look into the history of Google, Google was actually supposed to be not G O O G L E, it was supposed to be G O O G O L. But when they went to register the search engine, the individual spelled it wrong. And so they ended up getting Google. So that's why we have Google. If he wouldn't have made that error, we would have it. Uh, it would be spelled different today. Well, where does this word come from? So to understand this, you go back to 1920, you find that there was a mathematician named Edward Kastner that was trying to, that that came up with the term Google to talk about a number that's 10 to the power of 100 or 10 to the 100th power. So this is a number that is is known as 10,000 sexdillions. So it, it is such a big number let me illustrate how big this number is to Yes, you. I've
0: never heard that, this number before, Chris, so yes,
1: oh, please yeah, do. Yeah. Actually, I had to buy a special book that talked about math and the imagination because it's not a, this number doesn't exist because there's nothing that can quantify this number. Mm. So if you, and I'll explain, if you take up all of the particles, the atomic particles in the whole universe, not our galaxy, not a few galaxies, but the whole universe, all the subatomic particles, and you add all those up, you don't even get to this number just yet. So there's nothing to quantify it. So it's it's an imaginary number. And, and then his nephew, okay, this guy's nephew, Edward Casper's nephew, he came up with an even larger number, 10 to the Google power, which means that it, it it's just unfathomable. And so when you, it's unsearchable. You cannot search it out because nothing quantifies it. And so when we consider the unsearchable riches of Christ, what he's saying is that it is 10 to the Google power. It's too mm. much. You'll never come to the end of understanding how much Jesus Christ loves our soul and wants us to be in fellowship with the Father.
0: Chris, when you talk like that, it just makes me want to crawl back into the minds of those authors and the experiences that they had of who was this God that we serve. Because when you get back into their minds like this, it really does draw out a richness. So just remind our listeners, too, that if they want to get some more information from you and about your book and where they can go, where, where can they find some
1: of your work? They can go to amazon.com and they can type in Chris Palmer and uh, Greek for, uh, Chris Palmer Greek Word Study or Chris Palmer Letters from Jesus. I did a book, it's a blue book, it's called Letters from Jesus or Greek Word Study. Or they can go to my web- website, chrispalmer.me. They can find out a little bit about me and some of the U version plans that I have, et cetera, et cetera.
0: No, oh, Chris, it's just uh, great stuff. Do you have any more books that, that you're thinking about coming out for the future?
1: You know, I'm working on one now. It's called Strange Scriptures. So, what I've done is it'll be another Greek for the Week book. I took all of the texts that you overlook that seem to have no meaning, some of the oddest texts, and I said, let's make devotions out of these. Uh, the, the, un, the the texts that are undevotionable, I made devotions out of. And so like <laughs> one of the, the scriptures where Paul tells the Galatians to go castrate themselves, he literally says that. I said, how can we make a nice Monday morning devotion out of this and I think it turned out really nice so let's hope that it gets uh it, I, I submitted the manuscript so it should be out n- maybe next year in twenty 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 one. 2021. Oh,
0: well you you did do a fair treatment of the word rubbish so I, while I remain <laughs> skeptical of what you just said I think I'm gonna give you the benefit <laughs> of the doubt here Chris hey, hey it is great stuff it's so accessible so easy to walk in and yet it, it doesn't degrade or take away from the richness and the depth and the wonder that's all there so thanks for the great work and really look forward to next time we have a chance to have a conversation.
1: Hey, Peter, thank you for having me on. And tell Bill I said hello. I hope you got some sun wherever you want. Hey, we absolutely will do that. Thanks so much, Chris. God bless you guys.
0: Well, that's going to do it for the show for today. Uh, we really appreciate you guys listening as well. I just, I know even sitting in the host chair like this, when we have a guest like Chris on, and, and he just has such an ease with which he can go through the biblical text like that and and just get into some of these words. I, I promise you, I know it might sound intimidating at first to think, how can I get more deeply into the scripture besides just the English language? And and the English language is so important and into such a, a great leaping off point. It really stirs the heart and the mind. But some of what Chris talked about today Really, any of us can do it. It's just a matter of getting uh, equipped to do so. You can go to Lexicons uh, online, and they will help you get into some of those original words as well, just like Chris was doing. So that'll wrap up our show for today. I know tomorrow we're going to have Guy Talk as usual. Pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish will be in the chair, as well as secret agent Justin Jepson. I'll be in the host chair, so I'll be out of that hot seat for a bit. And then in the second hour tomorrow, we're going to have uh, former Mega church pastor Dave Johnson on the show as well. And he's going to talk about what it meant to hit the wall in his life and what what it meant then to come up in a different kind of life relative to the kingdom. So looking forward to our time tomorrow. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.